So we had a day of fasting and prayer on Friday. Um, we gathered Friday morning with a, a group, uh, <clears throat> a couple of the elders and a, and a group of people that had come together to pray. And um, one of the things we were specifically praying about was uh, the transition that we're going through as a church. And uh, when we came together, I, I was just really asking the Lord, is there anything you want to say to us? And one of the ways the Lord speaks to me, and, and by the way, when I say the Lord speaks to me, I mean closed canon of scripture, right? We understand that. That's just a good, a good rule of thumb to remember. Anytime we're talking about the Lord spoke to me, um, anytime the Lord speaks to us, <clears throat> uh, and he does talk to his people, but it's, it's never equal with scripture. It's always subjected to scripture. Scripture has final authority. The canon of scripture is closed. And so, uh, we understand spiritual gifts with, with that in mind. And also when, when someone says the Lord speaks to me, I, I also think that if the Lord is going to say something to me or to you, he's also going to say it uh, to the counsel of many in your life, which would likely include the local body of believers. So uh, with that caveat, anyway, the Lord really did quicken in my heart Hebrews chapter 9. And I thought, well, how is God going to say anything to me and to us out of Hebrews chapter 9? I mean, that's a, that's a doctrinal text about the covenants uh, in the book of Hebrews. But I turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and my eyes fell on verse 4 that says, Aaron's staff budded. And I thought, now, what was that story? And I felt moved to, to just take a look at what that, the events surrounding that story. And the story was that in the Old Testament, um, the people of Israel, as they were in the Exodus, uh, rose up against Moses and Aaron and did not like uh, the leadership structure that they had. And um, not only complained, but said, we got, a better, we got a better plan. And some of the tribal leaders formed a, a faction leadership uh, to replace Moses and Aaron. And so God spoke to Moses to take a staff from every tribal leader in Israel and put it in the temple. And God said, I'm going to show the man that I choose. And so they took the, the rods and they put them in the temple. And in the morning... Aaron's staff had budded. And what that means is it literally produced a harvest. Leaf, flower, and full almonds. And the way the story was interpreted in the Old Testament was, it was God's way of saying, this is, this is the man that I choose. I choose Moses and Aaron. And the Lord told Moses to take Aaron's budded staff and put it in a temple as a reminder to the people of what God had chosen. And I took that to be an encouragement for us. You know, we, we've brought a few... Guys, in and we've done a, uh, I guess the the first step of a search for an external, you know, lead pastor to come in and possibly take over, and uh, that hadn't, hasn't worked out. And where we've landed as an eldership is with this current structure we're going to move forward with, and uh, where we are open to the Lord doing something different. It's an encouragement to the church that, in a sense, Aaron's staff is budded, and this is the, this is the structure and the design that the Lord has given us at this time. Um, if you read the email that went out over the last few weeks, that. Uh, we are developing a, a model of plurality with uh, Caleb and Mike Tucker uh, leading the team and leading the, the ministry from week to week, uh, along with the support of the elders. Uh, and like I said, even though we're open to God doing something different, that is what the Lord has given us right now. And uh, in a sense, just like in the Old Testament where Aaron's rod budded, that, that's how the Lord wants us to see this. So let's move forward with confidence and unity and, and joy that the Lord has provided godly men among us to serve and um, that I'm fully confident in. And uh, I think it's a word of confidence for Caleb and Mike and the eldership team uh, as we've decided how to move forward in the coming season. So be in prayer. Uh, things, are, things are probably going to happen pretty quickly over the next couple months. Some you know, changes are coming. But uh, we trust the Lord that this is all part of his sovereign providence and we trust uh, the way he has designed this season, and uh, we're confident that the church is going to be loved and cared for and fed the gospel, um, just like it has been since the day we began. So we're grateful for that. If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to continue our series on the book of Ephesians. And we're just going to be in verse 4 today. As the title of this message is A Word for Fathers... And the title of this series is In Him. I don't know if you heard the story of the, the kid who went to Sunday school, a Christian family, 
And, uh, you know, the kid went to Sunday school, and the lesson was on the walls of Jericho. And, and you know, the, the, the Sunday school teacher assumed that this one kid that was in a Christian home would know, um, you know, who the characters were in the story of, of the walls of Jericho. And so the teacher said, you know, Johnny, um, you know, in, in, the, in the book of, of Joshua, um, who was the one who led Israel, you know, to, to tear down the walls of Jericho? I, I don't know. I don't know, Johnny said. Well, teacher was concerned. This kid's, you know, is this kid biblically illiterate in, in a Christian home? And so the father came in, you know, to pick up the kid from Sunday school. And the teacher was like, listen, I'm concerned. I, I, asked, I asked Johnny who tore down the walls of Jericho. And, and he, didn't know, he didn't know who did that. And the father pulls out his checkbook and goes, okay, how much did the walls cost? <laughs> That's the funny part. <laughs> okay, thank you. I, I think sometimes... Uh, it's easy to disengage as fathers. And you often see this in Western church where the kids are sort of outsourced to the youth group or outsourced to the church or, you know, outsourced to the kids' ministry. And here in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul gives a, an engaging, riveting word for fathers. And I suppose I'm a few weeks early on this, right? Father's Day is coming up in a couple weeks. But here we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians um, with this word for fathers. And here it is. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The NIV says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we study today this instruction, this encouragement for fathers, help us to see the gospel in this. Help us to see the way you father us, the way you lead us, the way you reach for us in Christ. And let our hearts be warmed by the Father's love today and uh, full of passion and vision and zeal. Lord, as we lead others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in the book of Ephesians where we're sort of beyond the, the chapters in the book of Ephesians where Paul is making doctrinal assertions and teaching gospel doctrine. And now we find ourselves very typical of the pattern of Paul's letters uh, we find ourselves where Paul is talking about what we might call practical Christianity. Two weeks ago, Mike Tucker took a look at the idea of husbands and wives. Last week, the title of the message was Honor Your Parents, as in Ephesians 5, I'm sorry, 6, 1 through 3, um, Paul gives instructions to children. And today, it's the father's turn. He's giving practical instruction to fathers. A few disclaimers before I jump into this. Number one. There is a danger whenever we talk about fatherhood um, to feel uh, guilty, um, especially as you get older. You know, I've got several kids now that are out of the house. Uh, my daughter, Joy, you know, little Joy just turned 21. Um, you know, Grace is now 23. Um, Esther is graduating this year and moving off to college. She's going to McKendree University with her sister, if you haven't heard. Um, but there are those moments as parents when you, um, the way I say it is you look out the window, you know, when I dropped joy off at college a few years ago, there's lots of hugs and tears and we're driving home and the whole family was asleep in the vehicle. And I'm just driving down the highway in that rhythmic. And you get this moment when you're leaving your child behind you, where you sort of just stare out the window and reflect and think, how'd I do? You know? And, it, and then a lot of guilt can come into that moment, like, man, I should have done this, or I could have done that, or, man, I blew this, and, and uh, boy, I wish I did more of that. And it's very easy whenever you start thinking about parenthood, and again, the, especially as you get older, and especially as your kids move on, to feel guilty. Let's remember the gospel as we talk about these type of things, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So I, I just want to lift that off of all of us, um, I don't know a single parent who looks back and goes, I nailed it. <laughs> Most of us give ourselves a failing grade when we think back. And, um, and it comes with emotions, too. So please, as you hear this message, I don't want anybody to hear any sort of guilt or condemnation, okay? Secondly, let's couple that with another doctrine, and that is that God is sovereign. You only know what you know, and you can only serve and minister in the degree of the revelation that you have at that time. So because we have such a high view and the scriptures give us that high view of God's sovereignty and providence, 
we have to conclude that it was God's sovereign will that we didn't know what we didn't know at the time that our kids were with us. Or in the season when we were younger and we wish we weren't as legalistic or we wish we knew the gospel better or knew how to shape and form them in this area or that area. And so God uses all of it. None of it is meaningless. God sovereignly designed your life and your family the way it is, including the struggles you, are, you might now, now be having with your kids or adult kids. God is sovereign even in that. Let's trust him and let's be people of prayer with our eyes on him and not ourselves in our report card because God is sovereign even in our errors and our mistakes. He even uses that for his glory. And finally, as we're talking about fathers, I don't want anybody in here, young or old, to go, oh, okay, this is for dads. I'll, you know, kind of check out now. Um, Really what we have here is a lesson for all leaders. After all, God is God the Father. And in him, we have the ultimate heart and culture and, and vision and mission of what being a true Christian leader looks like. So this message is not just for fathers, it's for, it's for mothers, it's for leaders, it's for employers, it's for coaches, it's for any of us, it's for big brothers and sisters, it's for any of us who have influence over someone else and how we ought to influence them for Christ. And the idea that you ought to have a vision for the spiritual health and the spiritual formation of the people that God has given you influence over. Okay, so those are my disclaimers. All right, back to the text. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First, I do want to speak directly to to dads. And I don't think I'm off the mark when I say that you, fathers, are your kids' first look at God. After all, you're the only one that bears the same title as God. God, after all, is not God the mother or God the uncle or God the brother. He's God the Father. And that's what you're called. You're a reflection of Him. And that's why when fatherhood goes wrong, it can deeply affect someone's view of God. And some, I've found in pastoral ministry, there are some who need to fix their their picture of God. They need to fix their dad picture. Because their understanding of father is, is skewed uh, by, by error and by pain. I had one woman say to me as I was ministering to her, she said, here's my problem. I have a problem with the Trinitarian view of God. I said, do tell. She said, I love God the Son. I love Jesus. I love God the Holy Spirit. I love his presence. I really struggle with God the Father. I don't connect with that picture at all. I see him as angry. I see him as, as you know, looking on me with disdain and, and, and an eye of punishment. And, and, of course, I began to talk to her about her relationship with her earthly father. And, and that idea just got put in there. <clears throat> the, the whole idea of father was contaminated by a toxic relationship with her earthly father. So, uh, fathers are a kid's first look at God. Second, fathers... If we just take this verse alone, we see that Paul's assumption is that as a father, you're the pastor of your home. That kids in the horrendous joke that, you know, only Scott politely laughed at that I told a few minutes ago. Fathers, oftentimes we outsource the spiritual development to someone else. And and Paul is saying here, take hold of it. Take hold of the development of your children. How? How do we do that? Well, he tells us. He says, first, do not provoke your children to anger. Or the NIV says, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So let's go through this. He says, do not provoke. This is a really interesting Greek word. It's par orgizo, par orgizo. And it's a combination of two Greek words into one. Para, which means really close. Like you get really in tight. And the other word is become angry. So that's the word orgizo. So para, really close. And then orgizo is anger, really close anger. And what it implies is that you get to the person, like you get under their skin. That's pretty close. You get under somebody's skin, right? That's the Greek way of saying you really got to them. You really got on, you push their buttons. 
you got under their skin. You got close enough in a way where you got beyond their defenses and the way you treated them produced a likely reaction of anger. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. You get in their face and produce nothing but an angry reaction. And the expanded definition actually says to rouse someone to anger, to provoke them in a way that really pushes their buttons. One commentary writer describes it this way, that it denotes the exasperation produced by arbitrary and unsympathetic rule. And we have to ask ourselves as fathers and as leaders, how did Christ lead? Is that how he led? Did he come in and push your buttons and and provoke us and exasperate us, weary us? To the point of responding where we gave him compliance. If we look at Jesus and the way he led, I want you to look at the incredible grace that he showed people, and especially sinners. The only ones Jesus actually seemed to provoke were the arrogant religious leaders. But when it came to sinners, he was incredibly gracious. And we don't have time to turn there, but just to reference two examples. In John 4 and John 8, Jesus deals with two different sexual sinners. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman of Samaria at the well. And it's, it's notable that she's there alone. That probably means that she was marginalized and ostracized. And Jesus has this conversation with her. And, um, and he says, uh, she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says, well, go call your husband. And then come back and, you know, we'll talk about it. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus goes, got that right. You've had five husbands and the guy you're with now, not your husband. Now you have to understand how frightening it would be for somebody to know that about you in Old Testament times with the laws that they had. Adultery was a capital crime at that time. And so Jesus had very personal, very secret information about this woman. But he doesn't get in there and start pushing her buttons and, and be like, how could you do that? Why would you? And provoking her in some way to some you know, negative emotional response. If you look at the story, you see incredible grace and love. And you might say that this woman didn't have a friend in the world except the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ. He loved her and he gave her tremendous grace to the point where she went back into the village and she said, come and see a man who told me everything there is to know about me. And the whole village came to Christ because of the grace that he showed this woman. If you look in John chapter 8, the very famous story of the woman caught in adultery. And you have the religious leaders who catch her. Some have suggested that it was because they were watching. So they, they caught And By the way, where's the dude? Like he was in adultery too. They just bring the woman. It's just terrible situation. So they, they bring the woman, they throw him down at Jesus' feet, and they say to Jesus, the law says that this woman ought to be executed. What do you say? He famously said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. They all dropped their stones and walked away because there was no one there who could throw a stone, right? Wrong. There was someone who could throw a stone, and it was Christ himself, the perfect one. He did not have sin. And yet he did not pick up a stone. Those who did not have a right to pick up a stone wanted to kill her. The only one who had the right to do it didn't. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone, my Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What tremendous love and grace and warmth. Just such a a culture of grace and mercy surrounded Jesus, especially with those that were listening to him, those he was developing, those he was influencing. So there's really two ways we can lead. You can lead with anger or you can lead with love like Christ did. And we've all seen that form of leadership where you lead with anger. And the problem with that is you can get compliance when you lead with anger, but you lose the heart of the person you're ministering to. And that's why you often see in a home where a father... Uh, and or mother leads with anger, you often see the child, once they get out of the home, flee from that relationship. And that's what often happens. The person leaves the business and they leave the relationship. They leave the team and they leave the relationship. They leave the home and they leave the relationship. Why? Because you got compliance, but you never got their heart because you led with fear and anger, not with love like Christ did. When you lead with love, the relationships last forever. When you lead with anger, the relationships last as long as they're with you. 
And this is an area that I've had to repent of myself because there's been times when I've led my home with fear or just exerting my authority in a way where I've gotten order and compliance, but I lost my kid's heart. And one of the, one of the uh, moments when I realized this was uh, from my dear friend, Bob Donahue, who's not afraid to confront me. Bob Donahue's been here before, uh, multiple times speaking. He's a pastor in Virginia. And there was a number of years where we would do what we call the Virginia Loop, and we, we'd drive down uh, the East Coast, and we'd end up staying with the Donahue family for multiple days as their dear family friends, and they have kids about the same age of our kids. And I remember on one of the trips, um, we were there for multiple days, and, and I don't remember what it was, but, but Esther, like, I don't know, took the last piece of pizza or something. Uh, and I just, I said, you took the last piece of pizza? She was scared. Yeah. I'm like, how could you do that? And Bob is there in the kitchen watching, and I just walked away. And I thought, yeah, I I told her. (laughs) I showed her not to take that last piece of pizza. And Bob came up to me in in the way that he does. He says, brother, brother, can I ask you a question? I actually said, can I share something with you that that, that might be helpful? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sure, Bob. He said, uh, I, I observed the way that you, you talk to your daughter, Esther, about that piece of pizza. I said, yeah. He goes, y- y- you told her what she did wrong, which was fine, but then you just walked away and left her in a state of condemnation. You left the weight of guilt on her. Why would you do that? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you just left in silence, and the silence just ministered guilt and condemnation. You need to lift that condemnation off of your daughter if you're going to say something like that. And I thought, man, he's right. That, that's something that I do at times. And so I've had to watch. I've had to keep that repented down in my heart because I don't want to, I don't want to minister or lead my home that way. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke your children. Don't put that weight on them that you're not willing to lift off through the gospel. And I think what we need to see just... With that first commandment, fathers don't provoke your children, don't exasperate your children. What we need to see here is that contrary to the way the world thinks about Christian homes, they think Christian homes are dangerous and threatening and not safe. What we are seeing here is that if if a home is operating in a biblical way, the way that Paul is talking about here, kids are safe in a true Christian home with a culture of grace. And if they are not, then that home is not acting very Christian at all. I remember uh, listening to a, um, a teaching series called uh, Reasonable Expectations for Teenagers. You know, Christian Parents, Reasonable Expectations for Teenagers. And it was a series that I actually picked up when I was visiting Bob Donahue's church. Um, and it included uh, a panel discussion with a guy named C.J. Mahaney. If you don't know C.J. Mahaney, he's the author of a number of books that you know, I, I've handed out the Cross-Centered Life book to some of you. That's C.J. Mahaney. Uh, he's written a number of books that have influenced me and our church, and I have a lot of respect for the guy. But he was on this panel, and, and I got to hear a little bit about how he interacted with his home and with his children. And he talked about one incident where his kid had sinned greatly, and he had a moment when he had to talk to him about it. And the first question he asked his kid was, is there anything that you've seen in me, any hypocrisy, any flaw that I have, any sin that I have that, is, that has affected you in some way that would cause you, that would provoke you to the behavior that we're, we're talking about today? So he, in other words, he didn't swoop in, you know, with the, with the hammer and I'm going to get a pound of flesh out of my kid because they are wrong. He, he came in with love. He came in with this principle. I'm not going to exasperate. I'm not going to get in close and start pushing buttons to make them angry. I'm going to turn the gospel light on myself first. That's beautiful. That's a culture of grace. That's a culture of humility. That's a culture of mercy. That's, that's the culture of a Christian home where the father and the mother are not exasperating their children. Okay. And then he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's talk about this idea of bring them up. Really, the Greek implies laying a hold of it in a way where you're owning it. You are not 
um, you're not abdicating your responsibility. You're, you're grabbing it and, and you're forming it. He says, bring them up. And so there's this idea here of being active and proactive and, and not being passive. And I think if you look at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, one of Adam's great sins there was passivity. And I think that that is a, a temptation for men just to be passive and just let things go as they are and not lay hold of the things of God, not lay hold of vision. And so Paul says, bring them up, grab it, lay a hold of it, shape it, form it. And one of the ways that I, I think that I think about this that helps me is, is that men initiate. That's, that's a mark of biblical manhood. And that's what God is like, isn't it? God initiated. He reached for us. We, we have a picture in the Bible of a God who's constantly initiating and reaching from the fall of man. God comes in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? That's a God who's reaching for, for his creation. And is there any greater example of that than in Christ? As God reaches for us in Christ, reaches for us through the Son. And so... The Bible says, be imitators of God. And so what does it mean to imitate God as a leader, as a father, as a mother, as a big brother, as a coach, as, as someone who influences others? It means you initiate. Maybe you're asking the question, you know, I know Jesus said make disciples. How do I get, where's the on-ramp for that? How do I become a spiritual mentor? How do I become a spiritual father or mother or big brother or sister? Initiate. Don't wait for somebody to come to you and say, hey, we've got this program, this mentorship program. You want to be a part of it? No, you look around the body and you go, I want to reach out to that person. And I want to I engage them for Christ. I'm going to have them over for dinner. I'm going to have a coffee with them. I'm going to get to know them. I'm going to develop a relationship with them. That's how it happens. That's how God did it. That's how Paul is telling parents to do it. He's telling fathers to do it. And that's how we make disciples in a discipling community. Is you have that heart of God which, which acts. You initiate. You reach out. And so I, I do think that it is the call of the father to be an initiator in his home. That fathers ought to be the first to reach out, the first to repent, the first to act. And then he says, so he says, bring them up, initiate in, in two things, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And we're going to spend the rest of our time just talking about those two ideas. Discipline, that's the Greek word paideia, and it means Instruction that trains someone to reach full development or maturity. So discipline is instruction that trains someone to reach full development or maturity. So I, I think the first question this begs is, what does that look like? Like, what is full maturity? What, what is full development? And I think what that implies is that we ought to have, um, that men ought to have a vision for their, for their families, for their children. And in specifically, a vision for the spiritual health of your children. So I'm not talking about a vision for like, hey, let's, let's plant gardens together. That's all wonderful and good, and, and, and certainly that can be a part of it. But I'm talking about the spiritual health of your child, the spiritual development of your child. So what does that look like? What, is, what does full maturity look like? And, and you get a vision for that, and you pray for that, and, and you build that. And, and so one warning here as we're talking about vision is, Let's make sure we have the same vision for our kids that God does. Because I think sometimes it's so easy to be just focused on temporal things. I want my kid to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. <laughs> I want him to have a good life. When the scriptures paint a different picture of what spiritual health is and, and what this maturity, what this full development is. For example, Romans 8, 28 and 29. God works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, here it is, here's the vision, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, try to wrap your mind around that. God predestined his people. He works in his people in such a way that he would conform us, shape us like a potter. He shapes us into the image of his son. So what is God's vision for your children? It's that they would know Christ and be like Christ. That's God's vision. And the problem is, if you have a different vision than God does, a different ultimate vision than God does for your children, you'll get disoriented when you thought it should go east and the thing went west. 
And that's how it goes sometimes. Sometimes they don't go like I thought it was going to go. But if I keep my eye on the ultimate vision, okay, this is ultimately not just about their external prosperity or even about their morally pristine life. It's about them understanding the gospel and depending on God. That's the ultimate vision. And whether God takes them down this path or that, or that path, that's my prayer and that's my ultimate hope and that's my ultimate vision for them. So I'm going to throw a, um, a disclaimer in here and a warning that in a message like this, I'm not suggesting that there is a, you know, raise a Christian kid code that I cracked. No. If you just do it, this, this, and that, then you will get this. It's the grace of God that saves anyone. And um, kids in a Christian home, and if you're, if you're a, a child in a Christian home right now, you don't get a different grace than a prostitute, a drunkard, an addict, a prisoner, a criminal. We all get the same grace. And we all need the same grace of God, the same intervening, electing love of God to reach out for us and rescue us. So, as I'm sharing this, please don't think that I'm saying ABC equals D. What I am saying is, as far as our part, we pour into them. We pour, we invest in our children for the sake of Christ and, and move them as much as we can toward that vision of spiritual health in Christ. Matthew Henry put it really well. He said, God alone can change the heart. Yet, he gives his blessing to the good lessons and examples of parents and answers their prayers. But those whose chief anxiety is that their children should be rich and accomplished, whatever becomes of their souls, must not look for the blessing of God. Good warning given centuries ago, and it's just as relevant today, isn't it? So, have a vision. Have God's vision for them. What outcome are you aiming for? It's their spiritual health and development. Well, can't I pray for my kids' prosperity? Of course, of course we can. It's natural for a parent to want that. And in some ways, I see part of my parental role is to help move them toward that as much as I can, to help make wise decisions and help create you know, success steps toward uh, vision for them that will create prosperity. But here's the verse that balances it all. John said, I pray that you would prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. Oh, there, there's the true biblical doctrine on prosperity. That ultimately what true prosperity is in Christ is soul prosperity. And contrary to what the name it and claim it prosperity preachers say, sometimes God is willing to part with the external prosperity to get to the internal prosperity. And that can be very disorienting when that happens. But let's keep our eye on what God is really after. And it is soul prosperity, that they would know God and that they'd be known by God, that they would know the gospel, not just here, but here, that they would be full of the spirit and experience the life of God, because that person has everything, even if they have nothing in the world. And that's the vision. And so we feed them the right stuff to develop that. So what's the right stuff? Back to the two things he says, discipline and instruction. So discipline is the word paideia, and it's basically instruction that trains someone to reach full development. And depending on which translation you have of the scriptures, the word discipline is also translated nurture. So the whole idea of paideia focuses on practical training or teaching by discipline. And that discipline can be developmental or disciplinary, but it's all loving and it's all for the purpose of developing them into the, into the vision of spiritual formation, spiritual health. So the idea of paideia is to discipline someone's life toward a vision. It speaks of shaping their character, shaping even their physical health through discipline, making good choices for body and soul. And I think, um, you know, athletes who are, are training at a high level are a good example of this, of paideia. You know, if you have somebody training for the Olympics, there are certain decisions they're going to make that confine and shape their life toward that vision. They're going to make sacrifices. You know, I've, I've watched a number of athletes training for the Olympic cycle in wrestling. Uh, for, up front and close, I've seen it. And I've seen how it affects their lives. They, there's certain choices they make in their diet. There's certain choices they make in how they spend their time. There's certain choices they make in their relationships to, to confine them to this very narrow path to give them a chance that when Olympic trials come, they'll be optimized and they'll be at their best. 
They'll be fully developed. <clears throat> That's the idea of paideia. That you're training the soul and you're training the body and you're, you're, giving, you're training them in life to move them toward a vision. But the second thing Paul mentions is he uses the word instruction, and that's the Greek word nuthesia. And it, here's what it means. This type of instruction improves a person's reasoning so they reach for God's solution by going through his thought processes. Okay, I'll say it again. It's improving a person's reasoning so they can reach God's solution. So this word uh, that's used here, instruction, is different than the one that was that he already mentioned, discipline. Where the first word, discipline, is about developmental health, this one is about mind health. It's about thinking healthy. Now, how much do we need this today? Man, oh man, kids are so confused today because parents have been taught to take their hands off their kid. You don't want to ruin their personalities, right? Free-ranging, just let them become whoever they are and just don't, you don't force your beliefs on them to the absurd extreme that in some cases they're not even identifying a child's gender. And they're just letting feelings and, and externals and culture shape them, all of which are just a cauldron of confusion and conflicting desires. And we raise kids who are utterly confused, who struggle with a sense of meaninglessness and, and struggle with a sense of purpose and struggle with depression and struggle with... There's, there's a, there's a, you want to talk about a pandemic? There's a pandemic of depression and anxiety in youth today. I wonder why that is. C.S. Lewis put it well in his book, The Abolition of Man. Again, before his time. I mean, this is just as relevant today, even though it was written almost 50 years ago. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings to be fruitful. 2021. We need wanted, godly leaders. Wanted fathers. Wanted mothers. Wanted big brothers and sisters. Wanted mentors and disciples. We need it. Our culture needs it. Our homes need it. The church needs it. People who are willing to do what Paul is saying and build into another person the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. To think right. To think correctly. What's the definition? Again, reasoning with them until they see God's solution. So the idea is that we reason with our kids or those that we have influence over until they see the gospel. We're not forcing our beliefs on them, we're showing them the beauty of our beliefs until they see its reason and they see its beauty and they welcome it into their lives. I uh, get an example, conversation I had with, with one of my kids around this area. Reese, was, Reese is 15 now. He's nine years old at the time. And uh, he just had this bad patch where he was, um, uh, he was being mean to his sister, Audrey. And so I, we, we discipline our children. We have conversations and discipline our children in the bathroom. And so <coughs> we'd been there two days in a row, and then it was day three, and Reese is in there again. And he's, he's leaning against the wall, and, you know, the, the tears. And I said, Reese, I said, here we are again. Same thing. Same thing as yesterday. Being mean to your sister. I said, do you want to be mean to your sister? Do you want to be a mean big brother? No, no. Then why are you doing it? I don't know. Romans 7. There he is. Took him right to Romans 7. The good I want to do, I can't do. Evil's right there with me. I said, so what are we going to do about it? And he goes, I need to try to do better. I need to be better. I need to try. You know? And I'm like, the gospel just rose up in me. I'm like, No! No, that is not. Can't you see? You've been at this the third day you're in here with the same sin. Can't you see that you are a slave? That you can't do better? You can't cowboy up and get over it? There's no switch in there to turn on. You lost. Can't you see? So what's the answer? And then he saw it. I need help. 
Yeah, you need help. You need Jesus. You need his Holy Spirit to come in and make you something that you could never be yourself. Okay? So I'm not raising a Pharisee, teaching him that somewhere inside, he just cowboy up and conform to the law. I want to raise somebody who loves Jesus and to see the beauty of Jesus in that moment, that he is his helper. And I encourage my son to welcome Jesus and ask for grace, unmerited favor, to be something he could never be in himself. And so, what am I doing? I'm having a gospel conversation, showing the beauty of the gospel, showing Christ as the loving answer in that moment. I'm not just going, how could you do that? You're a Christian kid, and you're the son of a pastor, and if you act like this outside the house, you're going to embarrass me. You're a Lewandowski. You need... Not helpful. Not loving. That, that'll raise a Pharisee. But to raise a Christian, I need to point to Jesus. Uh, Audrey. <laughs> we had a... Um, a situation years back, years ago. Um, I always say that for my kids' sake. It, it, it could have been like last week. But, uh, this wasn't. This was actually a while ago. And uh, Audrey um, took the last few cookies. Shouldn't have done it. And we knew she did it. And she was pretty young at the time, maybe four or five years old. Audrey, and I didn't want to just swoop in and accuse Audrey. Did you take the cookies? No. No, I didn't. I didn't. Well, who took it? She said it was, uh, this is, this is Grace. <laughs> Let's go find out. Go in and ask Grace. You know, she was an older teenager. At the, Grace, Audrey says you took the cookies. No, I didn't even like those cookies. I didn't take them. Well, she says you didn't do it. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. It was Joy. Well, let's go find Joy. Joy, uh, Audrey says you took the cookies. Did you take the cookies? No, I didn't take them. Oh, that's right. That's right. It was, it was, Esther. It was Esther. Oh, Esther, did you? We went right, she went right down the line. Every kid. Every single one. She ran out of family members. And I said, well, no, nobody, nobody took it. Looks like it was you. She goes, I know who it was. We happened to have a plumber working on our heating system at the house. Andy Klein. I know some of you might know Andy. Great guy. So uh, she said, Andy Klein took him. Let's go. Went downstairs, opened the utility room door. Hey, Andy, sorry to bother you while you're working. We just got to deal with a little something here. And I was just standing by my side, very accusing, looking at him like a policeman. I said, uh, so there's a few cookies that were taken uh, upstairs, and um, Audrey says it was you. <laughs> Andy, did you take the cookies? <laughs> well, I got to say, I do like cookies, but I, I did not take those cookies. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Audrey, it was you. <laughs> God and his love exposed her. Right? And we have a gospel conversation that you use all these moments to point to Jesus and to show the nature of sin. I'm like, Audrey, you just repeated the Garden of Eden. Right? It was the woman. It was the serpent. Nobody said it was me. Okay. So we don't just tell them what to believe. We show them the beauty of it. Um, Fargo National Championships a few years ago. I was on the coaching staff of the New York women's national team. Esther and Joy were on the team. and uh, The other coaches on the team, all good friends, great friends, but um, uh, most of them do not follow Christ. I mean, you know, if I'm North Pole, they're South Pole. Uh, but they're, they're good friends, and, and we have very open conversations about God and religion and things. We're sitting around the table in the cafeteria. Joy is sitting right there, and, and one of the, the coaches, a good friend of mine, goes, Lewandowski, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if your daughter comes along and says, I don't want this Christianity stuff. I don't want to follow this Christianity stuff. I'm like, Lord, help me to know how to answer my bro. And I said, well, I said, here's how I view it. The gospel is beautiful. And if she doesn't see the beauty of it, then it's not on me to force her to believe something that she doesn't see the beauty of. So my job as a father is to show her the beauty and the joy in Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And if she sees it, she'll freely do it without feeling any reason to do it because of me. She'll see it with her own heart, and it'll win her heart. I go, well, that's cool. I've never heard that said that way. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. But that's it. That's Christian parenting. Not just forcing, but showing the beauty. This is how the God the Father fathers us. His kindness leads us to repentance. His word convinces us of sin and grace. He wins our hearts with his wisdom and love. And the more we see him, the more he becomes irresistible. Okay, and if the, the last tag on this, on this verse here. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children 
to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Thank God he doesn't stop there. What does he say? Of the Lord. Bring them up in the things of the Lord. This would have been important for him to say. Because this phrase speaks of the warmth of what he's telling them to do. As training children in ancient times was harsh and stern. The idea of raising children in discipline and instruction was a welcome. It wasn't a new idea. That was a welcome idea. There was child training cultures and codes all throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. And most of it was very harsh and often created distance between fathers and sons, fathers and daughters. Matter of fact, there were some uh, parts of Roman culture where you didn't even consider your child your child until like about age 12. So they would use the word adoption differently. They would adopt their own kids. At like age 12, they would have a ceremony where they would become their child. So the distance that there would be oftentimes in those early years. And so Paul says, it's not just discipline and instruction. It's the discipline and instruction of the Lord that you do it in a gospel culture. That would have been a new idea. One commentary writer says, it may be noted that in accordance with the characteristic sternness of ancient education, both words have a tinge of severity in them, discipline and instruction. Christianity gradually softened the stern authority of the Father, so strikingly exemplified in the old Roman law by the idea suggested in the phrase of the Lord, that the children not only belong to the parents, but to their heavenly Father. So this phrase of the Lord speaks of the warmth, but it also speaks of the idea that we're not just trying to create good kids. All this discipline and instruction is of the Lord. It's with the Lord at the center of the solar system, so to speak. So we're not just trying to create good kids, but gospel kids that think gospel. So what are some practical ways that we can instruct our kids, our children, or any people that we're influencing in the Lord? Number one, the gospel. And in our experience as a family, consistent gospel conversations over time in the car, you know, uh, around the family table, throughout the flow of life, consistent gospel conversations over time create gospel thinkers where they start to look at the world through the gospel. And that can just be through intentional teaching, church gatherings, youth group, family table right now at our family table, even though with, with sports, when it's sports season, it's Lord help me. But we have a devotional by Tim Keller. It's, uh, it's on the Proverbs. And he's, he's done it in a way where there's one for every day of the year. And, it, and it's actually got the date on it. You know, August 1st, August 2nd, August 3rd. And so we just sit down at the table when we're able to gather. And I say, what's the date today? June 4th. June 4th. Read the proverb. And there's a brief explanation of that. And then some discussion questions and prayer. And it's just always such a wonderful thing. And just that over time has just been good. It's just healthy. It's just building the gospel into our children. We also do... Uh, takeaways from weekend gatherings. Our kids, we train our kids that we want you to get at least one nugget out of the sermon uh, if you're sitting in the adult service, um, which is not just an adult, it's, it's in everybody's service. Uh, we want you to get one takeaway. And in, in family meeting after uh, weekend services, we'll have a discussion on takeaways. And it's just such a beautiful time to just see what the Holy Spirit was giving you know, our kids. And we talk about that and, com- and have conversation about that. Uh, scripture memorization. We use catechisms, the New City Catechism. Right now we're going through the Westminster Confessions, this little book we have. And it's, it's pretty you know, pithy, but we're able to just kind of... Often I'll read a confession from the Westminster and, and my kids will be like, okay, could you please explain that in a way we can understand? And we'll break that down and try to help understand what this doctrinal assertion is saying. Another thing we do to build the gospel into our kids is this idea of sanctifying culture. And I'm not going to go into the whole thing again, except in the past I've shared this idea of receive, reject, redeem when it comes to culture. Some things we receive, you know, I, I don't need to sanctify it. It's just take it as it is. Like I don't need a Christian computer, right? A, a Dell will do. Um, so some things you just receive, some things you reject. There's no inherent value, for example, in pornography. So I just reject that from culture. Some things in culture, though, you can sanctify. In other words, music or arts, even though maybe it wasn't made by a Christian, I can sanctify that in a conversation with my children to have a gospel conversation around it. For example, I took my daughter Audrey on a daddy date the other night. We saw a fun movie, uh, first time out in like 18 months at a theater. And uh, on the way home, I, said, I asked Audrey, what, what were some virtuous things in that movie? 
you know, that were, that were good? And what, what things in that movie reminded you of Jesus? And we had a nice conversation about different things. It was a lot of virtue in the movie, a lot of really good things to point out. And then I said, okay, what things were opposed to the gospel and opposed to our, our worldview that they don't see the world the way we see it? And she actually struggled to come up with an answer, and I did too because the movie was pretty good. And then I realized, oh, and I pointed out how the characters seemed to have no view of eternity and everything was about survival and they put all their hope in now and there's this hopelessness beyond the grave. And I said, that's the opposite of the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is that the best is yet to come, that Jesus will make all things new and we don't have to have that hopelessness when we think of death in the future. But I just sanctified the movie for the sake of the gospel, even though it wasn't made by Christians. Okay, so that's one thing we instruct our children in. The second thing is worldview. Worldview, how to view the world. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we help our kids see the world from that verse. That everything we are, everything that exists emanates from that truth. And in our culture, the rise of secular humanism and secular cultural relativism, the idea that truth isn't transcendent, it's not uh, objective, it's subjective. Truth is created by the individual and by culture is a real threat to the Judeo-Christian worldview that we want to build into our children. So bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Teach them how to view the world from Genesis 1.1. I remember this uh, old Joshua McDowell story. He was talking to his daughter's principal. And he said, do you believe in, um, in secular uh, relativism? You know, the idea that truth is created by the individual and by culture and that it's not to be forced on a person by an outside force by God. He goes, yeah, I believe that. And he goes, huh. He says, uh, what do you think of Hitler's Germany? He said, What? He goes, what do you think of that? Was that good, bad, neutral? Like, would you, would you force your views on them? He said it was wicked and evil. And McDowell said, how dare you force your views on another culture? See, the inconsistency of liberalism and progressivism and secular humanism, it breaks down. Well, yeah, but they were hurting other people. Well, how do you, by their definition, they weren't. By their definition, they were purifying their people. You're forcing your view on somebody else. See, if we don't have a transcendent truth, a transcendent uh, God who dictates morality, right and wrong, truth and lie, then it's all left up to feelings and the individual and culture. We need to teach our kids how to view the world from Genesis 1-1. And there's a lot of great resources to do that, by the way. And then finally, in closing, we instruct our... I think our kids need instruction today in genders. Our world right now is, is it's a circus. And our culture is lost without a compass in this area. You now hear silly things like birthing people instead of the term mothers or they, them versus he and she. We need to show our children the beauty of divine design and the distinct differences between men and women that God has made. That biblical manhood and biblical womanhood should be celebrated in the church and in Christian homes and should not be seen as a threat at all. We have to teach our children that. Matt Chandler in his book, A Beautiful Design, which, by the way, is a great resource for that. He said, quote, God created us to function according to his perfect design. And for all of human history, our world has been male and female. But our ever-changing culture faces challenges due to sin. More than ever, the church needs to be a safe refuge for the gender-confused, the sexually broken, the single, the married, and the divorced. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but raise them up. Nurture them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. God did not provoke us, but won us through the demonstration of his love on the cross. He won our hearts. And so we come to him as people who don't just have to follow him, but we get to, we want to. He's done that with his love. Be imitators of God. That's how we lead as well.